It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. This podcast is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Guys, as we are clamping down in Australia, particularly on even harsher quarantine zones, the international border lockdown has happened, the local state border lockdown has happened, and COVID-19 is just not slowing down fast enough. So catering companies like Bella Catering have flipped into home delivery. If you guys go to bellacatering.com.au, you can find an insane array of beautiful home-cooked meals that can be delivered to your door. They are still an essential service. Why go out and brave shopping centers with absolute crazy people who want to sneeze coronavirus right into your face? Why not just stay online and order delicious catering from bellacatering.com.au? Glenn, Maria, the team, they're absolutely fantastic. Get onto their website right now. I definitely highly recommend the look of the butter chicken and the individualized $4 cheesecakes. Do it right now. You have to. And now, onto the show. The final film in Alan J. Pakula's loose paranoia trilogy, All the President's Men, does the impossible by making heroes of newspaper reporters and a thriller out of telephone calls and follow-up interviews. Based on Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein's expose of the Watergate scandal and President Richard Nixon's involvement in the felonious dirty tricks, it's more than just a cunningly crafted docudrama. It's a key film in the best era of the medium's history. It's a picture that highlights the period's mistrust in our leadership while establishing highly unconventional heroes for whom the stakes couldn't possibly be higher. And though we all know how it works out, it seems more poignant for our knowing how everything works out. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today for the 26th minute of the 1976 masterpiece directed by Alan Pakula is... uh, one of my favorite film critics in the world, um, a deeply insightful writer and practitioner, most recently wrote so eloquently at uh, the New York Times about the win for Parasite and is just utterly, tra- just, I cannot even imagine how much this guy writes pre editing uh, because his output this year has been completely staggering. He is um, the, the engine, along with Bill Chambers in FilmFreeCentral.net. You can see his stuff at Vulture and Decider and now the New York Times as well. Uh, it's, it's the legend. It's my friend who's been on all the One Heat Minute productions. It's Walter Chaw. Walter, thank you so much for coming back uh, to talk to me. Uh, Blake, it's such a pleasure always to talk with you. What a gentleman. Uh, <laughs> what, 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 a, what an introduction that I will never live up to, but I appreciate it. Well, look, we're gonna uh, we're gonna do this thing really quickly right now because uh, if, if folks listening, uh, if you if you're listening now to the 26th episode and you've been listening along the way, Manola Dargas and I had a conversation the other day. We didn't even get to introduce the minute, so I had to play the minute at the top of the show. So I'm gonna take a cue from that show. I'm gonna dive into the minute right now with Walter. We're gonna watch it together, and then we're gonna come back and talk everything about Pakula, about this film, about Redford, about 
um, uh, the incredible Dustin Hoffman who's on screen. Um, but also I'm sure that we can find a way to talk about both, I think, probably equal favourite film, top five film of all time, The Conversation. Um, so we're going to watch this. We're going to come back and have a conversation that will undoubtedly talk about The Conversation. In the Washington Post, and I was just wondering if you can remember any books that a Howard Hunt checked out uh, on Senator Kennedy. Howard Hunt? Yes, ma'am. Uh, yes, uh, I think I do remember. Uh-huh. He took out a whole lot of material. Why don't you hold on and I'll see? I sure will. Thank you very much. Bernstein? Yes, ma'am. I was wrong. I beg your pardon? The truth is I don't have a, a, a card that says Mr. Hunt took any material. Uh-huh. Uh, I, uh, I don't remember getting the material for... I do remember getting the material for somebody, but it wasn't for Mr. Hunt. Right. The truth is I didn't have any requests at all for Mr. Hunt. Oh. Uh, the truth is I don't know any Mr. Hunt. Isn't that... A wonderful, uh, a wonderful sort of display of not asking any more questions than you have to, and allowing someone to bury themselves <laughs> with a confession. Isn't that just a beautiful little uh, enunciation of that particular sort of exercise? Yeah, it's sort of a lost art, I think, in interviews um, nowadays. You know, especially on television or, or whatever, is sort of the art of the bad conversation. Yes, where you 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 just let it go. And I think Herzog, when he makes documentaries, especially, is the master of that. When you watch something like Grizzly Man or even his earlier ones, where he will just let the camera run after they finish talking, and he captures the most amazing things. Uh, you know, as people get more and more uncomfortable, they keep talking. They want to fill the silence because that's our social contract, sort of. And you know, I think all the president's men is 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 inspirational for young journalists in so many ways. You know, it's not only now I think sort of a fantasy of, of a working newsroom that was dying. I'm afraid, but you know, this idea that 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 the heroes in 1970s cinema were not Shane or, or 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 John Wayne coming into town, or you know the the or Clark Gable, you know you know knocking out the billionaire industrialist in the last reel. This is the heroes in seventies paranoia cinema in the United States were were were, were these mousy guys, these uh, <laughs> uh, investigative journalists, or, or you know the, the the hero of The Godfather is a gangster, but first he was a lawyer. You know, just these sort of loathsome sort of creatures. You know, traditionally. Yes. Uh, you know the, the 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 heroes of 1970s cinema. I mean, Pakula, right right before this film, of course, did the Parallax View, which is another one of my favorite movies, in which you know Warren Beatty plays the sort of skeezy loser investigative journalist, and, and it's like you know the, the, this, of course, all the president's been as part of you know the last film of his paranoia trilogy. Uh, Pakula's that began with Clute, and Clute Donald Sutherland is no no one's idea. I don't think of a of a matinee idol, right? <laughs> no, he's weird. Not. Yeah, I mean, he, he, and he, he was unfortunately not shy about nudity. He was just like a weird guy, but <laughs> but, but amazing. And it's just so typically 1970s. And I think that, you know, some of the really handsome guys like, like a Redford or a Beatty even were choosing roles throughout the 70s that grizzled them up or made them not sympathetic, sort of the Paul Newman sort of tradition of I'm very beautiful, but I'm going to play the worst person that you've ever met. I'm going to play a loser or something. And so 
Yeah, yeah, but you know, back back to your point. Yes, it, it is such a lovely example of just letting people hang themselves and waiting through the sort of awkward silence of, of, of the thing. You know, I, I've taken it as 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 inspiration when I do interviews as well, where I'll just wait that just an extra beat, just the uncomfortable beat, to see if there's anything else, because usually that's where the real heart of it comes out. That's where the the non rehearsed meat of any good interview happens is when you let them hang themselves. Yeah. It's, it's, and particularly here in the, in his face to face interactions, Hoffman in this movie tends to, he, he tends to be more abrasive. Like he tends to have like this, you know, more manic energy where he's in front of someone and he's sort of a bit more demanding or, and, and it's only like that great bookkeeper conversation where it's his most restrained, where he does this, he gets to enact this in person. But I love that about this conversation being in the newsroom because he, he kind of has that ferocious instinct where, you know, just putting his hand over his ear and just letting someone talk is how he can eat that information out on the phone. It's like that's – later on he tunes up how to do that in person where at the beginning of this film he's still a pup and he can't do it. But we've talked about your love of, you know, paranoia thrillers. I mean, what what is it about Pakula's like sort of definitive trilogy there and particularly Parallax as well as a great contrast in journalism movies. What what really stands out, Walter? Because, I mean, that's something I want to pick your brain because I just – there is something that he's able to sort of say without ever ha- – convey without ever having to say or articulate something that is just so essential to this time and films of this time that feels like – was so deeply influential across the entire ream of cinema that was made after him, but he's not kind of referenced in the same reverence um, or widespread sort of acknowledgement of this craft um, around. What, what do you think that is? Well, he, the, a lot of lot, lot of questions there uh, that, that, that are worth exploring, a lot of rabbit holes that you've opened up there. I mean, I, mean, I, I think Pakula, what he was really good at when I watch his movies is – is, is is the sort of visual evocation of paranoia, of the state of paranoia, when, you know, in, in Clute, when you hear a noise and you wonder if it's the ghost of your friend on the roof or if it's a murderer of your friend or if it's just another John who wants to murder this. So if, you don't really know, but what you do know is the fear and you know that they're being watched and there, there's these sort of disconnected points of view. Hitchcock was great at this. You know, Lang was good at this too, where you, you would have the camera suddenly give you the sort of third perspective or fourth perspective where that's not connected to anybody. And you have no idea who looked at um, and, and, and that happens in all the president's men throughout. I think where, where, who is watching, who's watching right now? Who's, who was, you know, when they're, they, they, they go door to door in that wonderful sequence and, 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 and the, the people that they're talking to keep looking over, you know, Woodward and Bernstein's shoulders into the darkness Yes. And and they look around, and, and eventually they become paranoid too. But we're paranoid from the beginning. We seem to understand e- even before our current administration. Uh, plural, I guess. I don't know how to <laughs> but you know, e- even be- before the current crises, when you watch this movie um, and, and Pakula's movies, and many of the great movies from this period, the, the American seventies from sixty-eight to eighty-one, actually, I think is is that you, you you get this overwhelming sense of foreboding, this doom that you are being watched, 
you are being listened to. Uh, there are people and things that, that, that have, have a grand plan, a machination, of which you cannot even begin to unravel. And even if you did, it does you no good. Another great, you know, sort of convention of the 70s that, that's overturned, uh, you know, from, from the noirs and the, and the hero stories that came before in Hollywood are, is this idea that the more that you know in the 70s, the less that you understand, the less that you are powerful. <laughs> Yes. You know, knowledge is the opposite of good. Like the parallax view, the, the you know, the, the, the more that Joe Frady, the, the Beatty character in that movie, knows, the, the more compromised he is and the less he actually understands about the grand plot. You know, even the character named Joe Frady is sort of like a play on Joe Friday, the just the facts sort of, you know, police guy of the 50s. And now, 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 now he's afraid and now he's scared. And we, we all are because. You know, I, I think we're at a point now at our current capitalist dystopia that the more that we understand about the, the, the shape of things, you know, sort of all out of the good place, the more that we realize we're compromised and there's no way actually that we can extricate ourselves from uh, the, these grand de- designs by powerful people and corporations that, 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 that are operating and in fact do rule the world. It sounds awfully paranoid when I say it out loud <laughs> even. Um, but, but here's a movie in All the President's Men in which everything that they fear – is true, and in fact, it's worse than they believe. It, it, it's worse, and the the resolution of it is is, is up in the air. They, they 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 run the thing, you know. It goes over teletype, and we see that Nixon has resigned. But you know, 30, 40 years on now, we look back on this and we say, um, yeah, it didn't get any better. We didn't solve anything. Now now we have stupid Watergate, and 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 and, and not only is it not actually stupid that. Watergate was stupid. Watergate, right? Not only is it <laughs> stupid, it, it's just sort of bold. Watergate. It's like it's not even a scandal. It's we're doing it, and yes. because we do it, it's no longer illegal. So you know the whatever optimism that there were was during the seventies that we're working through this, we're getting there. You know, be, begins to be dispelled by the, the sort of the, the first optimistic presidency of uh, of Ronald Reagan. You know, where, where I'm just going to run on self esteem. That's what I'm going to run on. And America was great. Um, <laughs> yes. You try to dispel sort of this gloom of the 70s, but really all it was, and we're seeing that more and more clearly now, I think, is just sort of this disguise, this cover for these grand machinations to continue to grind themselves out to the point now where our government has taken over. Uh, they're taking over our federal court system. Everything is sort of done. We may not have free elections again, quote unquote, to the extent that they ever were free after now. And whatever paranoia we used to feel has been confirmed and in fact we can't possibly know again how, how, how bad things are and so watching this paranoia trilogy again you know preparation for, for a chat today and watching all the presidents men especially is deeply bittersweet you know the this victory whatever these journalists win at that time is pyrrhic because you know we know that newspapers are doomed we know that free journalism is doomed we know that um, you know, all the things that we know today have made all the victories that we, we thought we had won pyrrhic, meaningless. <laughs> it's it's so funny that you talk about that reconciliation. I had a great um, uh, lecturer at university who uh, coined the phrase vicious prosthesis in, in relation to uh, in, into sci-fi cinema. And sort of always talked about, you know, you know, this 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 vicious prosthesis that you believe that you can wield 
you believe that you can wield it, but then it will ultimately destroy you. And I think that what what frightens me, and I, I love that your your allegories into it now, is that like at the time in 1976, we're peering over the shoulders of, or, you know, we're peering over the shoulders of Woodward and Bernstein as a as a witness, as someone who could potentially be a whistleblower to maybe physical people. You know, there's a beautiful shot in this movie at one moment or another where. Bernstein's walking along with an FBI agent and the FBI agent goes to tie his shoes and then for some unknown reason a man standing in a line that looks like a tourist who's going to walk into the White House turns around and takes a photo of Bernstein with that FBI agent just just one of those beautiful tells you know it's 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 beautiful tells in a movie that doesn't show any of this omniscient kind of menace that's sort of following these guys around but I, I think about that now in the, our modern context, and it's like you don't need to look out there to see, you know, a, a physical person watching you or tracking your movements or seeing who your known associates are. Like we've, like we've got them in our pockets. You know, we've got them in, we've got them everywhere. We've, we've, we're in such a privacy and surveillance state that like it's, it's, it's there. And and the very thought that you could be sort of, you know, hitting feet to pavement and and grounding up these new uh witnesses or new whistleblowers in any kind of grandiose conspiracy is just it's like we've already given up all of those rights and to yeah, your yeah. and to your point yeah. oh sorry it's sorry to interrupt Walter, but i was just gonna say and and finally to your point around watergate is about ultimately is you know that that break in when we talk about it it is a bold move to spy on your political opponents to gain a calculated advantage in an election and i think that if you were just to take out watergate and say do you think any administration is above um is is above using sort of espionage tactics to try and find out to get a calculated advantage against their partners in an election it's like no they just it's that's now commonplace they just call it vetting you know, like it's just called <laughs> vetting now. But what it yeah. is is like spying, unearthing things, spin, putting it in the media. It's just this whole beautiful, uh, beautiful chaos and and depressing um, end state that we've kind of arrived to. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like all of these movies during that period are, are sort of like Cassandra prophecies now. Yes, you know, the the, the they, they've they were warning us about all of this stuff, and you know, there are things that they couldn't possibly have have known um, that that are actually worse than what they're warning us about. You know, to your point about this deadly prosthesis idea is that, yes, these are cell phones, aren't they? And we've, we, 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 we not only have allowed the, the most sophisticated surveillance devices into our lives voluntarily, we pay for the right to do that. <laughs> yes. we, we, we apply, you know, these applications to ourselves to make it easier. We 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 want that. We want to do this, and and you know, I would say every single day, thirty percent to fifty percent to more, maybe of the conversations on Twitter or Facebook or whatever social media is complaining about the lack of privacy and how you know, but by, by doing this, we're just sort of identifying ourselves. When, when and it's pro- probably when was five years ago. When the administrations finally decide to make an enemies list, how easy will that be? We, oh. We've we've put in our profile and we made it public, <laughs> on purpose by ourselves. You know, would these guys, you know, the Pakulas, the Coppolas, even the Phil Kaufmans, you know, would, would they have in the seventies been, been 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 like? Oh, you know, not not only is the government going to be spying on every aspect of our lives, listening to us on the toilet and bed with our wives, not only is the government going to be doing that, we're going to invite them in. We want them to do it. Um, and, and, you know, that's the sort of level of dystopia that we used to look at and say, 
this is a satire. <laughs> what a strange, you know, all of these criticisms of that film at the time, you know, when we're in a different decade now, of course, but we're looking at that and saying, oh my gosh, what, what, what what would a flight of fancy Frankenheimer is on? No one, uh, how could, but now the Manchurian candidate is quaint. Isn't that, <laughs> isn't that uh, charmingly naive that, that they thought that that was all there was to it, you know, or, or even the dead zone from the eighties where, you know, the, the evil candidate lifts up a child to block the assassin's bullet and then loses popularity. Like, no, you know, I'm pretty sure that, that if Trump picked up a child to block a bullet, He'd be lauded for it by his base. He would, he would increase for his savvy, his his unexpected quick thinking at that moment. You know, and, the, and, and he'd praise the baby for telling him, "No, the baby spotted it. Oh my god, the ba- yes. I just helped him block the bullet." <laughs> well, he, you know, he'd use that as some way to, to to get after Michelle Obama. He'd be like, "Look you know, how fat this baby is." You know, if he eaten like a Michelle Obama wanted him to eat, he never would have stopped. <laughs> So, you know, there's we've gone into this place of, of, of real absurdity, of real uncanniness and surreality in our modern lives where it's like, you know, nothing really actually makes sense, you know, in a way. And so now everything has become um, uh, quantum in a way. Reality only matters in the eye of the individual beholder. And then there are these monolithic uh, uh, um, distributors of image that have formed what our reality is in this moment. And that's, these are all of the things that, that seventies movies were warning us against. Be careful of who you listen to. Be careful of what you look at. Be careful of, you know, the information that you take in, be careful of not vetting and not thinking critically. I think as film critics, you would say, you know, you you and I have been talking about this for for decades saying, Hey, look, uh, there's a real anti-intellectualism out there. That's scary. If I say something that's racist, then it's one out of, 500 movies I've seen this year. It's like, hey, this is pretty misogynistic and racist. You're going to have all of these people coming out threatening to murder you for that observation. It's a complete lack of critical thinking, and it's everything is guided by these mob, this mob rule, uh, and, and you know the, the, the this wisdom of the group. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I think. The, this deadly prosthesis idea, you know, is 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 really alluring to me. It's the first I've heard the term. I, I just, yes, we've we've you know Cronenberg like melded with these machines and and ma- ma- machines these insects. They they have no politics. No, um, and, and and here we are. And here we are. And, so, and it's that's what's it's it only just it, you help trigger that you help trigger that uh, uh, connection in my mind is that here it's so. It, it's so beautifully analog is that it's paper. We're trying to find a, pa- a literal paper trail. We're trying to find these people that the, the nostalgic moments in this are big, you know, um, <laughs> those big old chunky phones. That you've got to hold on and get a crick in your neck after three hours of trying to call people. You're, yeah. you're scribbling down notes. You're beautifully typing, you know, pounding away on a typewriter and, and there's all these clicks and, and now it's just, it's a surrender. It's that information glut. It's those things. And, and I think that, yeah, that old, um, um, uh, my old professor and that, and that vicious prosthesis thing is just now just growing and growing and, 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 and blooming into this thing. And also one thing I wanted you to point out is like, even on the most extreme examples, you talked about dead zone there of like, as it now feels quaint. It's like in a lot of respects with a lot of the diverse people who've spoken on the show, whether it's creators, critical thinkers like yourself or, or, or journalists, it's like they've covered stories that, that about things that like what Nixon did in Watergate that got him impeached that haven't caused people to blink 
in the public eye mm. in a contemporary setting. It's just like what – this was the line. The line was so pushed past and it's like one of those things where progress in that respect has not seen any uh, – progress hasn't seen like a refining of that line as a stance of morality. It's like this amorality. Like you said, it's like there's no there's no opportunity for, for two guys, one who's a radical leftist and one who's like a sort of – you know, uh, Republican centrists to to just take what is true to them morally about a situation and attack a story. It's about, no, he's right. He's red. It is what it is. We're going to back him the entire way. It just seems so crazy. Yeah. You you, you mentioned earlier the scene where, for, where in all, all the president's men, where someone unmotivated takes a picture, you know, of, of them. And, you know, it, it, that immediately triggered sort of this... The, you know, memories of scenes from Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the Phil Kaufman remake in 1978, yes. where, you know, be, before we know that there's a contagion, coronavirus like, I guess, before we knew that there was a contagion in San Francisco, you see these weird, disconnected shots of people pressed up against, you know, doors and peering out at, at our people as they're walking by or, or you know, just watching. And, and, and we, if, you know, the second, third time through that film, you begin to notice those things and you realize that that feeling of disquiet. A feeling of paranoia and doom that's growing throughout the early part of the film before anything's really happened is a product of all of those little visual ticks and cues. And, and you know, the, the long, long answer to the, your first question about Pakula and how he does the things that he does, I think is that, is that there are visual cues. There are ways that he puts his camera. There are ways that he, 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 he misassigns or does not assign points of view that create the sort of tension and this, this sort of real real feeling of, of, uh, of fear and paranoia in us, uh, of these characters in peril. And then, you know, because we can't place that anxiety, us, you know, becoming just generally anxious throughout the watching of it. Yes. And to, to further your point about this idea about, you know, how tenuous our institutions have proven to be is that, you know, we, we've gone so long on this handshake agreement that, that, that we will act like civilized people mm. and we will, will strive towards civilization. But what happens if when pods begin to outnumber us? <laughs> you know, yes. There, there was someone that, um, you know, that, that asked me a question flippantly, I think, about, you, you know, what uh, a sequel to The Thing would look like, John Carpenter's The Thing. And I said, we're living in it. And I think, <laughs> you know, the, the, you know that, that, that computer graphic and, and, and The Thing that talks about rate of contagion and how long they have, like we're at about 40, 40, 40% right now of complete assimilation. And uh, it, it's, you know, seems to be accelerating with each new atrocity because people like us, uh, you know, um, give up. <laughs> because, because, because we've been sitting around, to your point, we've been sitting around a fire wondering yeah. which one of us is infected for yeah. like what seems like a decade it's just right. like it just never it's like and that level of tension and if anyone who loves carpenter's the thing that level of tension that 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 peak that he's sort of riffing on at the end of that movie at the climactic moment of that movie like it's for that to endure it's a marathon it's a marathon to be just constantly on a nice edge and you know we're, we're taking this one um, on, a, on a few different roads but i think it's you know, very recently I was reading your terrific review of Guns Akimbo, a film that is um, embroiled, probably deservedly so, in um, a lot of controversy because of the filmmaker of the film, the writer-director was uh, sort of, I don't know, sort of in this weirdly perverse way, caught up in the same act of like uh, 
internet vigilantism that then turned him into a pariah um, as the protagonist of the film. And so, so many people like railed against the film. And I was actually very proud of you and proud to know you that you engaged with the film as a piece of art and the complicated nature that we have with filmmakers um, whose films that we critically praise. You know, Lenny Riefenstahl, I believe, is someone that you praised in there. And you can go as far as to say Roman Polanski and Woody Allen and talk about problematic figures in cinema. And so it was really, it's what's really interesting now is that, you know, what and what I love as a bit of a salve for this movie is that critical thought and truth and things being weird and off this movie ha- is like a true north. Like there is still people doing weird things and when there's duplicity, it rings a bell. Um, and right now in this modern contemporary context, it's like when there's a rush of that information and it's like a, a wave after wave of kind of, you know, just these swelling sort of emotions rather than any kind of critical thought, it it doesn't help us go forward as a culture. It just makes us more angry. Yeah, you, you know, and, and I... I I would, I've been kicking around this theory, you know, in my head because I'm a, I'm a lonesome guy and I do this a lot. But that that there's this idea in, that I've been sort of trying to trying to refine in a way that doesn't get me canceled, uh, <laughs> you know, about how there are certain stories that are told by certain artists that I don't know that they could tell them as effectively or as usefully if they were not themselves afflicted or guilty of those same stories that they're telling. Yes. Like, like I, 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 you know, and it's so delicate to talk about this now because I don't want to come off as seeming as though I condone or approve of, you know, Hitchcock sending a beheaded tepihedron doll to Melanie Griffith. But I, I don't want to sound as though I think that's good and <laughs> positive and that he should have done that. And, but I, but I will say that without that, in him, I wonder if a movie like Vertigo could be made the way that it was made. And, and Vertigo, actually, in my mind, is, is is terribly useful as a tool to have a conversation about toxic masculinity, yes. about what's wrong with men who objectify women and what that does to women inevitably, and what ultimately it does to men. Although we care less about that because he's a monster, but you know, <laughs> you be able to make Vertigo. Had he not been himself vertiginous, would you know? Would, would we? You know, would Manhattan be what Manhattan is if Woody Allen were not wired the way that he is? Would Rosemary's Baby work the way that Rosemary's Baby works without Roman Polanski being wired the way that he is? Does this mean that I condone what he does? No, no, of course not. You know, who who in their right mind would? But the the art that they created becomes a useful tool to have a conversation around what they're guilty of or what their 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 kink is if you will and i don't know that there's a greater great usefulness in denying those things you can make the personal choice of saying i'm not going to watch that that offends me i won't for it you know i get it you make a choice about what you want to watch and the people that you want to you know and again this is not about that what what more of it is about for me is should we cancel the new roman polanski film in the United States, should we never be able to watch it here um, because we don't like Roman Polanski? And for, for me, that's that that this is a critical moment for us in which I've begun to worry about the number of my allies who would like to burn books and movies. Yes, I, I, didn't, I didn't think that we did that. 
<laughs> I, you know, I, I was raised with a different idea of who the bad guys were in those situations. Now, if you make the choice not to watch it, great, fine. I support you 100%. And with all of my heart, I don't think that you should watch it if you don't want to. On the other hand, should it not be available to watch? That that's that's tricky now. And you know, there's that scene in the Last Crusade, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where he he happens upon a book burning. And I always assume that those people around the fire were Nazis, but if you look closer, they're not. They're your neighbors. And a lot of those, <laughs> you know, and the, 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 there's an issue there. And I think Fritz Lang talks about that a lot in his early movies in the United States about mobs being just Norman Rockwell barbers. Um, yes. and, 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 and librarians, and, you know, like driven to this frenzy. And, you know, it used to be that when we doxed or swatted people, that was really the product of a sick mind who, who, who was going to the library and calling, just like these guys do in All the President's Men, you know, looking through, through archives of telephone books to figure out where people were and how to do the evil things that they're doing. Now, a 12-year-old from the comfort of their, uh, of their room can dox and swat and potentially kill somebody just by you know doing a quick internet search and so you know sh the sort of mob impulse again you know it, it's it's scary to me and and all, all i really know about is art you know and i don't only know a little bit about that but it's like when we begin to become the party of let, let's burn everything that this person's done let's destroy everything that this person's done let's not have this conversation about it and let's forbid other people have from engaging with it that really scares me, and that, and and I, you know, we become now like the thing that we abhor the most. Um, you know, to bring it all the way back to, to all the president's men, Stephen Collins uh, is in this film, and he, he plays is. Hugh Hugh Sloan, right? And and you know, it, he's kind of a hero in the film. He's like the the the, the break. He, he's the guy that's willing to come out and say, okay, yes, it was these high level guys. Yes, I was in the room when all these all this money was being dumped on the table. That was me. So he's sort of like, you know, this champion of democracy. But who is Stephen Collins? Stephen Collins as a human being is reprehensible. Yes. He, he's a pederast. He's all of the things, you know, that, that, that we abhor as human beings in society. So so now do we not watch all the president's men because of this? You know, I mean, if you don't want to watch it, fine. But do we destroy the film because of that? And if we begin to destroy movies and cancel movies and say, no, we're going to put this in a vault. No one can watch this anymore. Um, what, what will actually be left? Yes. You know, I, I don't know. You know, and this is a terrible, you know, rationale. Excuse me, I know. But, you know, but David Bowie, Pink Floyd, Rolling Stones, <laughs> you know. There, there are credible accounts of, of 12 year olds losing their virginities as groupies to some of these guys. And I'm thinking, do, do, do you stop taking the positive messages of inclusion, of letting your freak flag fly? You know, do, do, do you take away all that these artists have meant to people with the right, you know, need and the right ear to hear them at the right time? Do, do we burn that? It's because, it yeah, of the artist. It's 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 so fascinating. Um, it's it's so fascinating because I think both you and I really um, were really struck by Hannah Gadsby's um, uh, Nanette commit, you know, stand up special, yeah. and she she takes she has such a great um, grasp of it, being a you know a, a, a sort of classically trained um, art th theorist, I guess you could call it. Like, and she talks about like in in fine art. We've just come to accept that 
all artists are completely screwed. Like they're all <laughs> fucking deplorable. Like every one of the f- most famous artists in the world have got these fascinating histories that are like you can completely disconnect this, you know, static physical production from, you know, the chaotic world of an individual and all of their whether it's like minor peccadillos or just crazy criminal debauchery. And it's like, I think that that's something that, you know, maybe it's because the dialogue isn't as refined and maybe that critical thought isn't there. It's just like people want to do that. And no one wants to talk about the great conflict that you have when you're like, I don't agree, you know, say your opinion is like, I don't, uh, you know, pedophilia is the most disgusting thing to me that has ever existed, but I've listened to Thriller and I like it. And I want to keep listening to it. And I may be deeply conflicted about that, but that's just something that you have to contend with. A lot of people don't want to admit those kind of like, there is something there. And it's like, do I think Polanski is an absolutely deplorable human? Yes. Will I watch Chinatown again? You bet your sweet ass I'm going to watch Chinatown again. (laughs) Am I going to cancel watching All the President's Men because of, you know, because of, uh, as you said, um, uh, Oh, what is his name now? I've just forgotten. Oh. So Stephen Collins, yeah, as Hugh Sloan? No. Uh, he, does he have a troubled history? Yes. Would I want to talk to him about it on this show? No. <laughs> That's not what it's going to be. I don't want to give him the airtime. But it's, yeah, it's this really weird disconnect. It's that Roland Barthes, you know, death of the author. And it's like this imposition of, um, you know, the imposition of an individual artist or an individual authorial voice. Like while it can be useful, um, it also dismisses the collaborative nature of art. And it kind of like, especially when we're talking about the rest of this film, Shining, and you know what sort of inspired me going down this digression with you with Guns Akimbo is you know it, it dismisses the outstanding you know trio of performances that are rounded out by the performance in Guns Akimbo versus say Samara Weaving from Mayhem to Ready or Not to Guns Akimbo and you know and and the great Daniel Ratcliffe you know redefining his career one one odd movie choice at a time from Harry Potter you know doing really great work it kind of discounts all these other collaborators who've done amazing work in this thing if you just completely dismiss it oh it shouldn't exist this guy's an arsehole well yeah he's an arsehole but these people did great work yeah, well, and, and the, the the thing with Guns Akimbo as well, for me, that's particularly tragic and ironically tragic is that the themes that it addresses within itself are, are extraordinarily useful for the very demographic that would go see it. Yes. This idea of, of mob rule, this idea of bullying, trolling, destroying people's lives online, yes. the sort of glee in watching other people suffer through the safety of your screen. Um, the, the, you know, this idea that public executions and blood sport are, are, are the rule of any land, no matter how civilized we tell ourselves, and the, how the internet is only exacerbating that. Those ideas and those lessons, ironically, that have caused it to be sort of, you know, swatted in a way, you know, the, 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 those lessons are so valuable for the young men especially who would be drawn to this movie to, to say, okay, wait a minute. You know, this is a, yeah, this is majorly fucked up, you know, and it, it, <laughs> if you, you know, in like 3% of 5% of the young men who watch this movie, if they come away with from it as it's wrong that this happened, it's wrong. And this guy is a hero. Harry Potter is a hero. Daniel Radcliffe in the movie 
for wanting to combat it and continuing to combat it. And I can get behind a hero, a superhero, essentially origin story that has the origin of a Batman who's out to destroy people who are destroying other people's lives through the internet. That's really actually valuable. And, 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 and tragically ironic that, that, you know, Jason Howden was um, caught up in, in this thing through his own ignorance and his own bias. And, and you know, I, I, I don't know him. I don't know anything about him. I, I, I feel like you probably would admit that at this point yeah. to say, hey, look, yeah, this was a really stupid thing to do and, and a damaging thing to do. Mm-hmm. And, but the re- response to it, I'm not sure that anybody has acquitted themselves well in this situation. And we need to look at our allies really hard and take them by the hand you know, and say, look, I get that you're angry. And I get this is coming from centuries. Boy, I get it more than most. Centuries of disappointment and feeling ostracized and alien in this culture and any culture that you're in. And you're so sick of the white guys. And you're so, I get this. I get it. I say it. I'm frustrated. It makes me rage and cry and say stupid stuff on the internet sometimes too. I get it. At a certain point, we are still not. We cannot be the people who throw books on fires. No. We cannot be the people who, threw, who, who, who start a bonfire from work that made by people that we disagree with. And, you know, you bring up Hannah Gadsby, and I love Nana. I love it because she kicks me in the in the ass for all of my perceptions <laughs> and notions. She's taught me so much. I've watched that three times. Each time I've been something more terrible about myself that I need to fix. And that, that that's that's the function of great art isn't it i mean I, I i don't know how many times i've seen all the president's men i've even taught a pakula you know uh, um, section you know in seminars I, I i i've seen every time i watch it there's more that i'm inspired to improve about myself yeah every time um every time i watch it i feel a little bit less despairing of the world knowing that there are people who are working like this in the world against the things that are terrible and i i uh what would we lose without vertigo? What would we lose without repulsion? What would we lose without um, Ziggy Stardust? What would we lose without, you know, w- without these works made by flawed, sometimes criminally flawed, sometimes repulsive human beings? What would we lose without the product of their hand to teach us about those repulsive, disgusting things um, that are perhaps true about ourselves? And, and in fact, isn't the... The, the the vehemence of our response to it, sort of, a, a, you know, a, a dowsing rod for our own prejudices and our own biases and the things that we fear the most about ourselves. Um, real art, good art, and good critics and good conversations about art should bring that out in work to say, look at this work, this Goya eating his child or, or yes. Son of Man, you know, these paintings, the this music done by a wife murderer, this, uh, you know, it's speaking all to things that are broken um, and perhaps all of us to various degrees. And what do we do to combat that in our lives and have this discussion? What better catalyst, what more benign catalyst in many ways than art? I, I would rather know about these terrible things about me before I do something that I really regret. Yes. Have a now about it. Um, and, you know, without getting into specifics about any of these controversies, it's like, look, you know, yeah, I, I yes, and, and do do these flawed men keep getting chances when, you know, really deserving artists of color, men, you know, white men without criminal pasts or, or impulses, do, do, do they keep getting these opportunities at the expense of others that are perhaps more morally deserving? 
Absolutely. And that's a completely separate conversation because for me, yeah, it's a shitty system. And these guys were able to produce at the expense of others. But does that make what they have produced valueless? I don't think so. No. I think there's no value there. No. By definition, we can engage with it. And like you said, it seems like so, so much of what, so much of like entertainment doesn't create a visceral reaction. And in my mind, it's like whether it's a salve or something, whether it makes you search internally or whether it gives you something visceral, it's like that's I, I, I want that in art. And sometimes it's like that that's the best entry point into a really hostile conversation because you can just use it as a centerpiece, just like that we use the minutes of you know all the president's men for this show and you sort of use it as a centerpiece to have a dialogue, a critical dialogue that kind of is important. That, that, that actually means something as opposed to and, – and you can come away with maybe not all the answers, but at least that you, you started to think about things differently, a little bit, a little bit differently, um, or at least be challenged with a different perspective. But um, Yeah, and, and, you know, and All the President's Men is a perfect metaphor for that conversation, isn't it? Because it's about people looking for the truth no matter how unsavory that it might be. And, and, and the truth in the movie that they're seeking to find are truths about the most essential – pieces of our nature, uh, the most essential pieces of what uh, we believe, our idealism and our, our patriotism. It's seeking to uh, know about things that are perhaps more comfortably not known, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and what a lovely metaphor for this conversation that we're having, conversations that you know might arise from talking about you know racism and misogyny in film. You know, the, the, the new movie out, uh, the, the new version of The Invisible Man, done by another one of your countrymen, Lee Lee, Lee, Lee Wano. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's just extraordinary. And in fact, one of the movies, a few movies that I would call Hitchcockian that weren't made by Hitchcock because it deals with all of the same ideas uh, that Hitchcock dealt with in many of the same ways. It's sort of like you know emotional ex- you know, expressionism that, that Hitchcock was was into. Um, and, and can we have? Should we have this conversation? Even though it was a white guy who made this movie, yeah, I think we should. I, I think that. There, <laughs> yes. there, there, that he raises great points and I want to hear them and I want to learn from it. Um, even if I don't always agree. Uh, and, and I think if we're open to that conversation, then nothing should be, um, verboten. If we're not open to that conversation, yeah, film can be used as propaganda. Film can be used as a cudgel, as a brainwashing tool. We see Fox news, right? Yes. Um, and, and so if you're not open, if, if your mind is closed and you only want reassurance from the things that you see, no matter what they're what they're saying, yeah, film can be terribly dangerous, but I'm I'm not sure that I'm ready to ban them yet. <laughs> no. Oh, uh, but you know what? I'm I, I'm I'm just absolutely thrilled of the breadth of this conversation with my great guest Walter Chow. Walter, you're always an inspiration to talk to, and and folks listening, I just want to thank him on the show. Thank you so much um, for everything you do uh, uh, on online and also behind the scenes with me personally. So thank you, mate, so much for being a part of the show. This has been one of my favorite conversations so far in the series. So thank you so much for being a part of the show. Yeah, and when you ever do that uh, minute-by-minute thing of, of Francis Coppola's The Conversation, I hope you'll have me on. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, you've just added another one to the list, shall I say. <laughs> that is the, the, that, that's like the... That's the ultimate audiophile uh, deep dive. The one of the greatest movies, if not one of the, if not the greatest American movie of all time. It's one of the greats, and um, it's oh, it's just really special. And of course, you'd be number guest number one. You'd have to lead it off and start <laughs> down the rabbit hole with Harry, and then end it well, together, having knocked down an apartment playing saxophone together. I think that would have to be the deal. Well, I, 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 I'm way ahead of you. I break down a wall every day. <laughs> all right, my friend. Thank you so much. Thanks, Blake.
Wow, that was my absolutely incredible guest, Mr. Walter Chaw. If you want to find uh, Walter and, and Bill Chambers, who we mentioned earlier, and see the review that I mentioned from October 7, 2012 in the opening narration, you need to go to filmfreakcentral.net. That's filmfreakcentral.net. Those guys have an incredible uh, array of coverage of all sorts of movies. And Walter, if you want to follow him on Twitter, is at Mangiotto, which is M-A-N-G-I-O-T-T-O. He is an absolutely essential follow. They also have a Patreon right now. So whilst we're in the midst of things like COVID-19, get on, support those guys who want them to exist long into the future. This has been another One Heat Minute production. Thank you so much for listening along. We have an amazing array of shows. One Heat Minute, obviously. The last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. Increment Vice. Josie and the Podcats. All the President's Minutes, which you're listening to today. And our daily podcast, Con 10 Gen, which is a tight 10, talking to a whole stack of folks in isolation, in quarantine, sort of accounting for in this community everything that's going down. Listen along to that daily. We're going to have great shows coming up for you, some unannounced stuff, which we are going to announce to tease for the future. But if you want to support us, we do have a Patreon, and you can find links to that on oneheatminute.com. If you want to go to our site, oneheatminute.com or incrementvice.com, you can find out more about the shows. And if you want to go to graffitiwithpunctuation.com, you can read about Contention and our upcoming six-part limited series, Josie and the Podcasts. Until next time, thank you so much. Subscribe, rate, review, share. Thanks so much for listening.